What would you do differently if you knew how many Mondays you had left? My name's Jake Thompson. I'm a speaker, author, and most importantly, your chief encouragement officer. Welcome to the Compete Everyday Podcast. Good morning, competitor nation. Jake here, your chief encouragement officer. And today, today's a good one. It is the first Wednesday of the new year, and we are excited to welcome in my new friend, Jody Wellman from 4,000 Mondays. Jody loves to tell people she went from corporate executive to executive coach to now a stop squandering your life coach. She has a, as she calls it, a morbid-ish and mighty mission in life to help people not take life for granted, to not feel like they've squandered their time, to feel totally alive. If it sounds like something out of a Christmas carol or a holiday movie, it's because it's something along those lines and much, much more important as she will tell you today on this great episode. It's going to inspire you to evaluate where in your life would you change things if you knew your clock was ticking. What would you do differently if you could actually know when you might die or have a near-death experience? And how can we mimic those situations and experiences without having to go through them? How can we start to change our lives today for the things we want instead of, as you've heard us talk about here on the show before, getting to the end with regret? How can we more often end on empty? Those are the things that Jody and I are going to talk about on today's brand new episode As we dive into today's show, I want to invite you to join me and other professionals in the new Competitor Nation. All you got to do is go to competitornation.com and you'll be prompted to download the brand new Circle app. It's free. Get in there. You'll find out about when we're having offline coffee and meetups in your city. You'll get connected with other people in the community. You'll find a Q&A forum for things around mindset, leadership, how to grow within your career, all the resources you need to show up and compete every single day this year without having to get caught in the distractions, the hassles on Facebook, Instagram, and a number of other social media platforms. So head on over to competitornation.com, get signed up, and join for free today. Now, let's welcome to the show my new friend and the founder of 4,000 Mondays, Jody Wellman. Thank you. I'm so excited to compete. Yes. Yeah. Well, I have to ask to get to get it just right out of the gate and set the tone. How many Mondays do you have left? Okay. 1,892. 1,892. And we're basing this off the average life expectancy of? For women, it's 83. Okay. For men, it's 78. Not yeah, so lucky. Say much less. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you might be, you're going to beat that. You, you compete know. every day. You, yeah. So. You, you go against the odds. I love it. And everybody listening is like, that sounds like one of the most depressing things I've ever heard of. Why are you calculating how many Mondays you have left? And for a lot of people, I would imagine probably not the people listening to this show, because I know competitor nation well, but a lot of people, they get those Sunday scaries every mm-hmm. Sunday night before work. And so the idea yeah. of dealing with that and Monday, they're like, eh. I mean, maybe I want to count down how many Mondays I have left, but only for work. So <laughs> flash back with me, where did this idea of, of 4,000 Mondays, and I know Memento Mori is very important to you. Take yeah. me back to where the concept and, and this idea started to come from 
and how it's really changed your perspective, which has changed how you showed up and, and created the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where to begin? Well, you know, I've always had a little bit of a tame fascination with death, okay. you know, like nothing to like gothic. Like super Halloween-y like, or just like death? Death. Like, okay. like, like just go to death. Like it's not okay. even dressed up, you know? And so it's been this sort of more about the absurdity of our human condition, right? So like I, I'm a, um, you know, positive psychology practitioner. And so it's all about living the best life. Like we've got this in common. Right. But then all this framed by what, like we're, we all know we're going to die. Like, this is crazy. Right. And so the, I don't know why I've always found that very amusing. And well, then, we all know it, but we tend to f- ignore it. Well, that is what we do very well. You're totally right. So we have lots of coping mechanisms to avoid and <laughs> deny it and not talk about it and not plan our, like our, our wills. And all. I mean, we just, we dance around it and I'm like, let's stop the dancing around it. Let's dance with it. You know, let's, let's embrace it because the cool thing is that research does prove that it is worthwhile. And so back to your question about making this kind of work, I've always been fascinated but I never thought in the work I do, so there was like old fashioned leadership corporate. And then when I transitioned into leadership development and coaching and stuff, I was always too scared. Like, oh God, no one's going to want to, like, I can't, I can't go there. Like, this isn't going to fit. But then I did a grad school program at University of Pennsylvania in um, applied positive psychology. And I gave myself permission to study this topic of memento mori, which is you said it, you know, the Latin phrase of remember that we must die. And it just lit a fire, you know, it made it feel legit. It made it feel like, well, if, if there are journals about death studies and we can talk about this and have it be um, empirically based, well, then surely I'm allowed to talk about it. And then I just said, well, Hey, 4,000 Mondays is born. And I would just want to like scream from the mountaintops, life short, let's get on with living. Okay. So I have to ask, because I, I wonder if some of our listeners are as well. Studies about death, you, yeah. you have to study it from one side of the grave because once you're, you're in, you, you can't really give that perspective. So how, how, did, how are their studies? What are they studying in this process that you started to chase down rabbit holes on? <laughs> yeah, well, there are, there are sets of research around what's called temporal scarcity. And it, it is um, an initial idea around when we look at something, any kind of asset, and we see that it is rare or it's temporary or it's like limited time only situation, right? Like any kind of a stock oh, or yeah. a rare gem or whatever. Well, then we tend to look at it from a very different perspective and we think, oh, wow, that's more valuable. And so it's like that with life too. And so there are cool studies and research that shows that when we do stop and actually realize, like, for example, 1,890, however many Mondays left, and you know, I'm going to ask you about your Mondays, just that's going to happen. I'm going to have to figure that one out, but yeah. (laughs) So when we do that, as bizarre as it is, and as much as it's rankling, it is, um, it's designed to do what happens, which is, oh, wow, that my time really is limited, you know, duh, this isn't news, but now that I've quantified it it can make me look at it and say, wow, the the scarcity perspective, which is often counterintuitive for coaches, right? We're all about abundance. Yeah, but you know what? Scarcity works. Let's use that and say, how do I want to make the most of my time? Because it is ticking down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So I'm curious along just a few lines of this because 
I, I feel like we're in the season right now. We're recording. I know this is airing early January. We're recording in December, right before the holidays. This is essentially a Christmas carol. This is Ebenezer Scrooge seeing his death and his past and what's ahead of him and completely changing how he starts showing up in the world because of that experience with death. And and you're saying we're seeing that actually in people who have near death experiences completely change how they start showing up and taking advantage of life. Totally. Yeah. And, and that is just a whole other chunk of research that is fascinating. I love it. You know, and and even just, we know this anecdotally, right? Like you must know of someone who's had a brush with death. Have you? Uh, I do. I was about to say a couple of friends with some cancer scares that have gone through those battles. And and obviously I think something like that, you face your mortality mm-hmm. and look at your mortality very different after mm-hmm. going through that experience. The question I guess for you is, is maybe twofold around this. And I'd be curious from a coaching and then your positive psychology background. One, how do we make sure, say we are the person that goes through the near-death experience, that we don't, what is natural tendency to revert back mm-hmm. to what's comfortable? Yeah. And then two, how can we, and I'm sure this is the work you do, elicit the same response without having to go through the same experience? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're right on my wavelength here, man. Um, you're right, because we will adapt. And like research is very clear that there's this thing like hedonic adaptation. And that is where whenever anything really great happens to us, we think it's maybe going to be like, this is going to be the thing that's going to deliver everlasting happiness and fulfillment. And then you're like, yeah, but for some reason that, that excitement waned, you know, the new relationship or the new car or the new home or the sunset view or whatever it is, like you're going to adapt. Same thing. The good news though, is that we also adapt to the crappy stuff right? So you become a paraplegic. The good news is that you're going to revert back to your baseline of happiness after like 18 months ish anyways. Gosh, I'm going to knock on melamine that that doesn't happen to anybody here, but the adaptation's key. But I will say that there is something like if, if all the scenarios in life that I've come across with research, the the near-death experience is one of the most lingering and it, it is typically sustainable. So some people do need to actively pause and reflect back. Like one of my clients, Becky, uh, recovered from breast cancer, two young kids. And she was really hell bent on like, I want to, I want to hold on to these lessons that I learned about my life. And so she calls it, you know, Becky 2.0. And she's like, I want to, I, I need to make sure that I don't slip back. Cause she was going to go back to work and back on that treadmill. Yeah. And so sometimes there is more of a conscious deliberate, but it, you know, um, it may not be lifelong, that somebody who has rebounded from a a serious situation, they may not be permanently changed for the rest of their lives, but even if they're changed for uh, a a chunk of months or a hefty amount of Mondays, that's still worth us learning from. So how do we not have to get to the edge and look at death in the eye, right? It means being really, unfortunately, deliberate with it. So we can... Like there's, there's a lot of research around what's called mortality salience and we, we, death is all around us, right? It's in like every TV show or movie, basically we watch ambulances go by, or, you know, we read about it in the paper, like it's everywhere. And those subconscious thoughts don't tend to really do much for us. We have to stop, like press the pause button and get really, really vivid and deliberate with imagining uh, our own mortality. And so counting the Mondays is a start really imagining the end, really imagining your deathbed and any regrets that might linger there, 
really getting vivid with it, that's the stuff that can create that transition that we're talking about. So let me ask you uh, along those lines, one of the things that popped up uh, probably because my wife loves Christmas movies is the movie, The Holiday with Queen Latifah, who thinks she's dying. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, it's been out a long time. So she's not ultimately dying, but she goes drastic. I'm going to this hotel, I'm doing all these crazy things. And people see that and they're like, well, you know, if I thought I had two weeks to live, I would do this. Or if I thought I had six months to live, I would quit. But I don't, in my head, have, quote, six months. I still have 16, 20, 30 years, even though we don't actually know the time. I can't do that. I have responsibilities. I have a job. I have kids. I can't change my life like I would if I knew I had six Mm -hmm. Mondays left. So how do we encourage at least more embracing that idea of the Mondays and Mm -hmm. shifts Mm -hmm. when our natural inclination is, yeah, I would do that if I knew when the date was there Mm -hmm. and my calendar was there, (laughs) or I have all these other responsibilities. I just can't change life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do like, we do like to know, right. And I, and there, there's neat stuff out there about like what would be different if you knew, even if the date wasn't as imminent, like I always find those annoying, those, if you had a year left to live, well, like that's not an indication of how to live now, because of course we're going to blow the bank account. Of course we're going to go do crazy things. And so that to me feels a little bit like that's fun fantasy and it's totally movie worthy. And yet for the rest of us, uh, I think what we want to do is like, just take a little sprinkling of it, right? It's like, it's the essence of, oh, right. I am not going to live forever. So the thing I've been putting off, like the thing I've been maybe like yearning to do a goal. I have um, a big dream that I just keep thinking, Oh, I'll do it later. If this memento mori practice can be even the smallest little trigger point to help push you to say, don't wait, you might not have that chance. And so start the book or start to take the lessons in tango or whatever you want to do, or go book the trip on that cruise of the Nile or whatever you want. Like, I mean, to me, like that's a win, right? So we're talking about subtle things. Like I, I'm not ridiculous enough. I am ridiculous than this, but I'm not that naive to think that we're going to be like making massive life overhauls. Cause that's not sustainable for most of us. Cause you're right. Like we do got to go to work or we do got to have responsibilities. But what if it's just these little life choices that if remembering, yeah, you know what? Life is short. I am going to book that trip with my buddies for that weekend that we keep postponing. Let's just get it in the calendar for March. Like that's a win, right? Like that's like score one for life. <laughs> so I think it can be actually that subtle. And and that, you know, it's funny as we talk about that in January, because we know everybody sets their new year's resolutions and goals for the year. And most people go so big or so vague and research shows 84% give up within three weeks, the importance of the small, the little tweaks. And, and I think that's important from a standpoint, not only of shifting that mentality, but building confidence in your ability to, because it's that little, those little marks of, oh, I booked that. I have confidence in myself. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm curious about from your standpoint is I would say the biggest reason we don't is that fear gets in our way in Mm -hmm. one of its many disguises. But I also find that very ironic because we should be afraid of death more than whatever else is in front of us. And yet it's probably fear that stops us from making these adjustments or as you call it, undeading our Mm -hmm. lives. What would you say to that in terms of that relationship with fear? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. A lot of F words I would say around the fear. <laughs> word. Yeah. Yeah. It's your, I think you're super spot on to it. And you are right that the bigger fear should be that, I mean, it is because many of us are super covert at feeling anxiety about death. And then we just push it down, push it away and it manifests in other ways, which is super fun. Um, but we've already rationalized that. Like most of us are, have already found our little coy, little tricksy moves to not think about death. And so then we're just sort of living our lives and you are right. They can be riddled with fear and disguise. And that shows up often as um, the number one, the desire to like, I'll do it later, which sometimes is actually a true naive, like I'm busy. I'll get to that later, which is just very sad because you might die next week. So sorry about yep. your luck. But often it is the, like that unwillingness to take a risk um, and maybe play big or try something that might not succeed. You know, so I used the example a minute ago about like, write the book, you know, if that's mm -hmm. something that's like within you. And this actually, I think ties nicely to this idea about deathbed regrets. Cause to me, these are linked. I love the thought experiment of imagining you're on your deathbed. And when you look back on your life, what would be the things that you would feel those little pangs? Like, man, I really wished I did that. Like I've always wanted to, but I didn't. And when we can identify those things, then that's where I think if we really stop and get honest with ourselves and we go, well, why am I not doing it today? I think you're right. It's because, oh, I'm afraid that if I do take that risk to apply for that bigger job, that I might get rejected and I don't want that feeling. Or if I do start to write the book and it sucks or I get bad reviews or no one buys it, then that's going to feel something that's only going to be drowned by alcohol or something else. Yes. Right. So, you know, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. We're, we're not willing to engage because I think we are afraid. I think you're right. Often. It's, it's interesting. You use that example and I mm -hmm. shared it recently on Instagram and I, and there were a few different people that shared it. You might've shared it as well, but it was the author that was posting about, she went to like a book signing and like two people showed up and she felt just humiliated and like devastated about this book signing event. Mm -hmm. And all of these big authors started chiming in on this thread and was like, like Stephen King and like, like level authors who were like, mm -hmm. Oh, I've had that happen. I had this event and they tell their story of when I was there too. Mm -hmm. And so like this thing you're afraid of and that, you know, every author fears of going and nobody shows up. It's happened to everyone. The best of the best have had it happen to them. And so I just, I love that from just an encouragement of the soul standpoint. And then just the reminder of like that thing that you're terrified of somebody else was too, somebody else still showed up and look what they did afterwards. And so it shouldn't stop us. It should actually spur us onward to mm -hmm. say, if it happens to them, it can happen to me, but look what they did and look how I can do it. And so I just, I love that. I love that idea and that work um, mm -hmm. of just how we can reframe it. Talk to me a little bit, cause I'm, I'm vastly fascinated about the work you do today through the 4,000 Mondays, through kind of your practice, tell me about some of that. And, and honestly, I'd be interested, what led you down the road of psychology in the first place? Mm -hmm. Well, I've been acutely interested in the happy life, which sounds frothy, yeah. right? Because I know a lot of people in positive psychology bristle at, no, 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 yeah. it's not just happiness because it isn't. But yeah. I've, always, I've always been interested in 
Like, what does it take to be happy? And maybe this is coming from a home with a lovely mother who was manic depressive. And so she wasn't happy a lot. And so when she was, it mattered. And it was very much like, what does it take to make us happy and enjoy life? And so that triggered, of course, though, like what makes us tick, what ticks us off. And then, I mean, that, I mean, for those of us who enjoy any little bit tidbits of psychology, it's like, that's a rabbit hole. That's fun. Um, and then of course, positive psychology, um, totally biased, but it's the best of all the psychology branches, um, because it is the study of what makes life worth living. And it's not all about, you know, fun, happy mimosas, um, which is the hedonic side of well-being and happiness. Cause it's also just to get granular, the eudaimonic side is more yep. about the, um, more, um, rich stuff like meaning and purpose and stuff. So in, in digging into all that, it was a really just an exploration in how we can live our best lives and how can I ideally help people with that? I've always been interested in most of us, you know, like helping professions, right? Like how do I help people be their best first career out of college was as a personal trainer, you know, and that was one version of it, right. Which is like, yeah, how to feel good physically, which is then feeling good mentally, which is then all the things. Uh, and then that, you know, transition pretty quickly into more of the more of the mind and more of the work side of things. And then more now of the, what about the rest of your life beyond work? Um, yeah. So that's kind of the journey of psychology. Yeah. So, uh, so in your, your work in practice today, is there specific pain points you tend to focus on with clients? Is there kind of areas you, you steer folks to of making this half the best half? Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that from, from your standpoint of it uh, and how obviously it ties into this work you do with 4,000 Mondays. Mm-hmm. Most people that I work with are busy, successful professionals at, let's just say, you know, they could be different levels of their career and they are longing for more, you know, that feeling, not just sort of self-actualization, although that's great, but more of a, um, wow, you know, I, I want to make sure I'm not one dimensional. Like I want to make sure that my business is amazing. And yet is that all there is? Like, I don't want to be magic question. Is that it? (laughs) Yeah. And the answer is, I don't think so. Right. Like, of course there's more. And so getting people to helping them tap into whatever it is that helps them feel more alive and it's totally relative. So I always get a little bit, like, I want to be super cautious that as much as I might profess loudly and overly enthusiastically about living what I call an astonishing life, it isn't meant to be judgmental about like, well, wait a minute, I'm the boss of what's a good life. Your life no, nope, your life's boring. Your life's good. Your life looks like fun. No, like you do whatever you see what's you on want. social media. Oh, <laughs> that looks really fun. I don't know about that. Yeah, totally. And that's the thing where I think people have these like, wait, what is it supposed to be? There isn't a supposed to. I have frameworks to help you see and diagnose the dead zones in your life and and make areas of which where to focus to add more vitality or meaning or both. We could talk about that, but it's largely about helping people feel like they're not taking their lives for granted because busy, successful people, we get swept up in the current, usually of work or our routines that work around work. And then all of a sudden we're like, is my life passing me by, you know? And so that's the thing where like, I really want to help. Like I want to take people and like almost violently shake them. Like, what? no, you, we can, we, we can reorganize this. You can design your life so that you do make the most of it up until 
the day you die and it doesn't have to be Instagram worthy. Yeah. You know, I love that because I think there are, I think there's the camps of, is my life passing me by? And then there's the other camp, maybe some of the same, where they bought into this idea or this lie of what it should look like or what Mm -hmm. success looks like. And they work and they get to that corner suite, this white picket fence. And they're like, is this it? And they feel like defeated and lost and almost checking out at that point. And, and it lacks that purpose. And I, and I chuckle with friends of like, how can someone making six, seven figures, great job, great neighborhood, great life, feel less meaning in what they do than someone like Viktor Frankl? Mm-hmm. in the middle of a Holocaust camp mm-hmm. and ended up writing man's search for meaning and how he talks about that purpose and meaning and finding mm-hmm. it. And like, that's where I always frame it of like, we're focused on the wrong targets and we're easily tricked as a society into the wrong targets because of what's popping out of media and, and other places that have we bought into this lie or this story. And so I love hearing you talk about that because I think it's it's needed, and especially with executives and high achievers, because yeah. you've seen it, I've seen it. We have those type A's, and we're driven for this goal and this opportunity. Yeah. And a lot of times we're letting things pass us by, and, mm-hmm. and we get to a point of realizing it and think, well, crap, it's too late. <laughs> and then we start telling ourselves the excuse that it's too late, when in oh. reality, you and I both know it's not. Oh, golly. Yeah. I'm working with an amazing 80 something year old right now. Who's like just rocking life. And like, I got to tell you, putting me to shame with like, I go to bed at like 845 now. And this guy like, oh, wow. Um, and you, yeah, the, the highlight, I guess, of, um, again, just back to that, like the relativity, I think is key is that, um, and back to the motivations, your point about a lot of stuff is external motivation, yep. right? Like what are people seeing of me? What do I look like? How do I present myself on the outside? And that is a big part of the work. I think you're right. Uh, at least the, maybe the work we do with, with clients and so on. One of the things I've noticed lately is that I believe there's a lot of pressure that we place on ourselves that we're supposed to have pure intrinsic motivations that are all tied to this really magnanimous and glorious meaning and purpose. And that's great. But I also just don't think like, if you're a human in 2023, um, like what if it was room for both? You know, like we, I think we talk about extremes, like, you know, we should back to the should word, we should have just really altruistic missions in mind and we shouldn't care about what other people think about us. And I don't know. I mean, we can't really eradicate that. Right. So I just think about like, what if it was like a coexistence of, yeah, you know what, you're still allowed if you want to, to really, like, if it really motivates you that your title sounds a certain way, then you know what, let's not try and strip that out of you. Like, what if we also add to the mix stuff that makes you feel meaningful and purposeful at the end of the day that maybe no one else sees or knows. So I just want to do a little shout out for maybe there's room for both. Cause I think we feel pressure that it's supposed to be just one way and that we're something wrong with us. If we somehow do still care about, I don't know, the car you drive or the shoes you wear or whatever. Yeah. It's well, and life is the gray area. It can be, hmm. it doesn't have to be an either, or it can be an, and hmm. in a lot of senses it's, but finding that internal purpose is such a key driver for a lot of that, that allows those other external motivations to still be there. Um, but maybe in a different light, 
than if we put all of our eggs in just that external basket. So I love, I love that perspective. Jody, this has been an absolute blast. Where can people find you online? Where do you like to hang out most on social? And then if they're interested in your coaching and speaking, where's the best place to get connected? Okay. Thanks for asking. The website is 4,000mondays.com and everything can be found there. There's a calculator that can calculate your Mondays if math isn't your strong suit. So do it. And uh, for social, I'm uh, more on Instagram these days and that's 4,000 Mondays and it's spelled out F-O-U-R-T-H-O, da, 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 da. So 4,000 Mondays on Instagram. And we are linking, we'll link to both in the show notes. I'm going to give her a shout out again. There are I don't even want to call them doodles because it's incredible artwork. Uh, but there's a lot of drawings you'll notice on her Instagram page. You'll see on her website. If you watch her TEDx talk on YouTube, um, you'll see them there throughout. But she actually did those. Uh, and I complimented her before the show because I think they're fantastic. And they fit. Obviously, you can tell by her energy. She's got a lot of it. And when you read her website and check it out, that energy just kind of flows through. So Check out uh, her stuff. Give her a follow online. Go to her website if you're interested in learning more about her speaking and coaching. Jody, this was phenomenal. Thank you so much for just bringing the energy today, but as well as just sharing a little bit more about just a new way to look at life and how we live life and taking advantage of those Mondays, whether we have six, 60 or we've got you know 3,000 still in front of us. I really appreciate it. Hmm. Thank you so much for this really valuable chat. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast. To get plugged into Competitor Nation, find more episodes, pick up your next favorite shirt or tank, or find out ways how we can work together through my speaking and coaching programs, visit CompeteEveryday.com.